Hello, and welcome back to the Dialexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Shivasava, and I'm your host. This week, we have with us Professor Joseph Frigo, who is also a visiting or who is visiting assess, assistant professor of philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. Hi, Professor Frigo. How are you today? Hi, Sarish. I'm great. Good to be here with you. Of course. Um, and thank you for your time and for being here today. Uh, before we get into the discussion, I wanted to ask you about your introduction to philosophy. How did you get into philosophy and what stood out to you and what is your research centered around? Sure. So I uh, encountered philosophy first uh, in a kind of indirect way. I'm pretty sure it was in the context of a high school course in English uh, that we were uh, handed some platonic dialogues kind of shuffled in there between the materials. And it wasn't given to us as, now we're going to read some philosophy. It was just kind of uh, shuffled in there. But then by the time I started my BA, uh, that was when I started you know, taking courses in philosophy. Uh, seeing it presented as such, um, what stood out to me about it? I mean, I think one of the first things that stood out to me was this kind of strange breadth of the field. Um, it was uh, not long before I started taking as many courses as I could, and you quickly see that, like, you can be talking about uh, ancient Greek culture in one course. I had another course we were talking about uh, contemporary advertising. My first course was called Images of the Self. So we're reading all this psychology, thinking about the nature of personal experience, um, courses in philosophy of science, philosophy of biology. So it's just, I think, the kind of intense breadth of the field, which is kind of strange, stood out to me. Um, you can talk about almost anything, which for someone trying to figure out what to major in uh, was kind of nice. It kind of is good for the indecisive, which is what I definitely was at that time. Um, so I found my way towards uh, courses in the philosophy of biology towards the latter part of my BA um, at a small liberal arts college in Eastern Canada. And uh, really kind of dove into thinking about, you know, the evolution of uh, human morality, the evolution of uh, the moral emotions, um, trying to think my way through some of the problems about, you know, how does an evolved creature uh, develop in such a way that it is confronting the world in this uh, morally inflected way. Um, but by the time I uh, I took four years off after that. I took a pause to try to see if, um, if this was really something I could make a career out of, right? Which is something that I think all um, majors should do. Um, you know, I come from a kind of working class family and so my parents and, and uh, close family were um, a bit concerned when I came home talking a lot about philosophy, I thought, you geez, you know, I'd like to major in this. Maybe I could go to grad school in this. Maybe there's a career in this for me. There were kind of some eyebrows were raising uh, there. Uh, I see you smiling. It seems like you're, you're familiar with this idea. And, it's, and you know, um, 
God bless him now. I'm glad that I had those conversations, but I did take four years off uh, to think about it and then came back to pursue a two-year master's degree at uh, UBC on the West Coast of Canada, and then eventually my PhD at Boston University in uh, Boston. And coming now to your question, what's my research centered around now? Uh, it took a kind of a hard turn in the latter part of my PhD when I took um, a tremendous course uh, with a scholar by the name of David Lyons who that was cross-listed in the law department. So it was this really wonderful graduate course with half law students and half graduate students in philosophy. And it was called The Color Line and the Question of Reparations. Um, and so we just read more pages than I have ever read in any graduate course. It was like social history, legal history, uh, going back to, you know, uh, 1619, essentially, in the American context. Um, about the phenomenon of race and uh, race relations in the American context. Uh, that was kind of the first two thirds of the course. And then the last part of the course, we got into this question of reparations as a kind of moral question, legal question um, in the American context specifically. And so that's really where my research began to shift. And that is what my dissertation was on. And that's what my, my interests have centered on that topic since. Um, I'll just say one more quick word about that. Um, when I tell people that my research is in uh, philosophy of race and on the question of black reparations in the US in particular, uh, it's a bit misleading because most people, especially philosophers, think that I am wading into this question about like reparations. Are they justified? Are they not justified? Here are the arguments against, here are the arguments for and kind of taking some stand on that moral question. Um, there's a great deal of incredible work in that uh, exchange, um, but my project is a bit different. It kind of comes into the conversation about reparations in a slightly different way. I think about it through a kind of political lens. So essentially, I don't think that what's needed in terms of achieving the political goal of racial reparations is um, some stronger argument about why they're warranted or justified. I think that those arguments are in place. Those arguments are strong. They've been made. Um, I think the more interesting question is, given how strong those arguments are, given the facts of the nation's history and you know, the facts on the ground in the present moment, why do those powerful arguments seem to fail and fail so badly? Uh, so uh, my research, and we're going to talk more about it, obviously, is kind of coming at it from that, from that angle. Given that we have this kind of argumentative failure, as a matter of fact, um, what's going on there and how can philosophers be of service in trying to move that political project forward? Definitely. I think that's like a really important space to kind of explore because oftentimes like you know you can get caught up in kind of like what one of the previous guests would call like the armchair philosophy right writing about different views and stuff but at the end of the day or not maybe at the end of the day but to a certain extent um a lot of these things have real life impacts uh and so discussing and moving forward different projects uh could be really really important um and before we continue into um 
the next part of, I guess, this, this podcast, I want to give a brief content warning uh, that there could be potential graphical images of violence in the next few questions and answers, just because uh, we're going to be talking about race and obviously police brutality. Um, so with that said, I want to clarify a few terms um, that are widely misunderstood, I believe. Uh, what exactly is race and what does it mean for race to be a social construct? Um, and then could you explain the difference between race and ethnicity? Um, because a lot of people, and I think a lot of young people as well, who may, may, not, may not be educated um, in what race and ethnicity is, conflate the two uh, to mean the same thing. And I just want to know if there's a difference and what that difference is. Yeah, awesome. Bunch of big questions there. Um, I'll try to be quick on the big question, what is race? Um, and you might have guessed kind of partly from the way that I describe my research is that I don't think, for my money, the interesting questions in the philosophy of race are not going to be solved if we could like get the right account of what race is. It seems to me that it's more political. Um, and so while there are fascinating questions in the philosophy of race that try to get the metaphysical questions right, I don't linger on those um, in my classes, for example, but um, we do talk about it a little bit. So I don't have a personal theory of what race is, but I have some kind of uh, ways I come at the question. So I find it helpful to start with what race is not. So uh, race is not biology, right? For a long time, people thought that race was biology, that there were some joints in uh, the biological world that you could identify, that natural science could identify and divide human beings into these distinct kinds or racial groups. That's been debunked. No one, hardly anyone believes that now. It's kind of the received wisdom that um, race is in some sense constructed. But this question is important because like that really doesn't tell us much. Socially constructed how? What does that mean? It's quite vague. Certainly not socially constructed in the way for example, some other kinds of conventions are like that we drive on the right uh, in the United States and we could just kind of change our minds and drive on the left, change the content of the construct. Certainly race is not like that. It's not a matter of kind of arbitrary decision. Um, sometimes students will think that once we let go of the idea that race is biological and agree that it's constructed, uh, they'll wanna say that it's not real race is in some sense not real. I think that's also kind of risky um, because it seems to me and to anyone else living in the world in, in 2022 that it is of course real. Um, uh, it bites into our lives in all kinds of ways which we'll talk about. Um, so then the question is like how, how do we understand that reality? So the parallel or the contrast with ethnicity is helpful. There are some similarities but of course, there are some disanalogies, and I think this idea that race is somehow analogous to ethnicity or maybe even just a kind of ethnicity is misguided. So when I think about ethnicity, I think about uh, culture, language, heritage, right? So think about, um, uh, you know, we would say, oh, I'm an Italian-American, so I'm of Italian heritage. My culture is associated with this European nation. We speak a certain language, my ancestors come from that region and so on. Um, most people would say, yeah, that's an ethnic uh, identity that is distinct from, for example, your status as an American citizen. So you're an Italian American, 
or if you're from Poland, you're a Polish American and so on. Those are examples of eth ethnicities. Um, and as those examples indicate or should indicate, um, that I think is quite distinct from what we mean when we talk about race, right? So, um, and one way that I think is helpful to try to clarify that is um, this idea of politics or, or, or uh, race being political. So if I'm an Italian American, my ethnicity is kind of prior to my political standing, right? If I'm Polish American, my ethnic identity is kind of prior to my political standing as an American. And the way that I've been thinking about um, race these days is that it's wrong to think of it in pre-political terms, that there's a sense in which race is actually more centrally politically constructed. Um, historically, but also um, uh, contemporarily. So um, think, for example, about uh, status like you know, in the context of feudalism, where you've got a, a feudal lord and a serf or something like that. That's a political relationship. And those are two sets of standings that are fundamentally political in nature, such that when the political arrangement changes, when feudalism is overthrown, there's just no such thing as a feudal lord anymore. And there's no such thing as a serf anymore, because that kind of standing has been eliminated. I think there's something really uh, useful uh, associated with thinking about race in terms of uh, constructed kind of in socio-historical political terms, because it really brings out the role that power uh, plays, right? So you hear people say things like race is a system of power. It's fundamentally hierarchical. It's fundamentally about a kind of standing or status in political contexts. Um, those are the ways of thinking about race that are most attractive to me at the moment because they bring to the foreground um, the kind of lived power differentials that most of us associate with the lived reality of race. So when we're talking about race, uh, maybe as like a system of powers, right? Um, and I guess maybe to clarify, um, ethnicities we can think maybe associated with location, correct? Right, I mean, certainly the examples I gave, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for when we're talking about like maybe like a system of power and um, what exactly does race mean? Like, how do I, like, what is, um, how do people classify other people by their race um, if it's a system of power? So for example, like if I am a middle-class citizen, do I also consider the other, another middle-class middle citizen as the same race as me? Or because that would also maybe be in a, in a, I guess, in a capitalist society, a system of power, right? If you're in the same class, you would have more or less the same power as another individual. But that's not how we look at individuals by the race, right? So what exactly does it mean to like consider someone else's race, right? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, this is quite helpful. So this is where the kind of socio-historical component comes in, where you've got um, kind of fixation on the kind of phenotypic properties, right, that we, that the kind of 18th, 19th century pseudoscience of, uh, you know, racial science fixated upon. And so there's a kind of overlap between certain kinds of phenotypic traits uh, uh, or one or another kind of idea about what kind of ancestry is relevant for the relevant racial essence to kind of carry through. So part of what makes the concept so messy is that all of these kinds of 
um, artificial ideas about what a racial essence is and who's got it and who does not that humans, human scientists, flawed scientists or human you know, power agents of one kind or another bring to the equation, kind of get layered onto and kind of folded into the creation of these distinctive forms um, of standing in the power relationship. Um, so it's not, right, this is, this is why it's so easy to get confused and say, oh, well, to be racist, to look a certain way, right, to be, to be a Black American is to have a certain kind of phenotypic appearance or to be a white American is to have a certain kind of, you know, a tint to your skin or color of your eyes. Um, there's a kind of truth to that, given the way that things have unfolded in the world. But when you're trying to think about what race most centrally is, uh, it's wrong to fixate on those things. And biology can tell us that now. And so what's left is this it, more essential to what race is, is these facts about standing in the political context, I submit. Okay, that definitely makes more sense. Um, and I guess like there is ways in which that, you know, unfolding that you were talking about um, can be different, I think, for a lot of people and how they understand and interpret race. Um, because, you know, there's so many examples of it and how it's been used in the past, um, you know, through media or just through what happens in daily life. Um, I think like a great way to kind of understand uh, the intersection between race and maybe political or the political or even the social uh, was through the documentary, uh, the Netflix documentary 13th, which did a really great job into introducing, I guess, systemic racism and the roots of racial problems uh, inside of America. And for reason, a lot of critical scholars introduce or think of America as an arpithed, I think, state. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Um, and if there is a race war um, in America, like how, is there a race war in America? And if not, if so, why? If not, why not? Yeah, these are some heavy questions, right? So you mentioned the documentary uh, 13th, um, which, it's definitely worth a look if any of your listeners have not uh, seen it. It is, of course, widely seen, widely viewed, and had a big impact, right? Um, but in terms of understanding the way that material conditions have shaken out in the American context in terms of the oppression of uh, Black folk going back to the dawn of the nation, it really does a powerful job of showing the through line of those material conditions, right? Uh, when chattel slavery is upended, legal changes, a power flips occur. Um, but when you step back from a certain distance, even though the writing on the books, uh, you know, has changed and you have a kind of formal institutional abolition of slavery, uh, the material conditions kind of quickly, kind of re, uh, kind of equilibrium is quickly reestablished in terms of, uh, you know, convict leasing and other forms of uh, essentially re-enslavement in uh, following the Reconstruction period. And of course, the film's main claim is that this is carried on in a, in a new way uh, in the era of mass incarceration. And so I think that any kind of socially concerned person needs to take those broad historical arguments seriously. As an important part of uh, one, just like the racial history of the country, but two, part of, to pick up on the previous question, kind of the creation of what it 
the creation of uh, race as we understand it now in terms of how it informs uh, our lived realities, what we see, what we believe, what we feel, and so on. Um, you asked a question about whether uh, America is an apartheid state. This is a compelling question. Um, I think it's an important question. I think we can learn a lot from asking this question. My impulse is to say that it depends on what you mean. And that's kind of made clear by the example that we just went through in talking about 13th in terms of the way that the 13th Amendment you know, abolished slavery formally, but with the exception for incarcerated people. And so you have the continuation of the material conditions. If we want to understand apartheid as a kind of overt, uh, explicit form of racial hierarchy or racial domination, which is kind of written into the legislative policies throughout, you know, in a top-down way. Everyone knows what's going on. It's kind of like explicitly written into the content of the constitution of the nation, for example. Um, then the answer is no. And so I, I do think that in the American context, there is an important sense in which it is not an apartheid state. Um, but that's not the end of the question. There's more to say precisely because and this is why thinking about race is so confusing and why it's so politically messy, because you have this facially neutral code of laws um, and a kind of pretense of colorblindness in so many aspects of the legal structure in this country. Um, many people are confused and believe that that means that, you know, there's no sense in which there's any kind of racial hierarchy whatsoever. Like the facially neutral character of the laws is just demonstrating that. This is obviously deeply mistaken. I mean, I say obviously, but I wish it were more obvious to more people. But um, when you look at the facts on the ground, you know, um, and the material conditions as they stand in terms of access to various kinds of social goods, like, uh, you know, real estate, employment, uh, various components of the social safety net, healthcare, um, across racial lines, it's just hard to deny that there is something very similar to what we see, for example, in apartheid South Africa. I mean, I speak as someone who, uh, you know, I lived last year or year before uh, in a small town in South Carolina uh, that was essentially a segregated town. I mean, you could drive through town and there, everyone knows where the white side of town is. Everyone knows where the black side of town is. And when you drive through the white side of town, the homes are large and well-kept. And the cemeteries, the white cemeteries, right, are, are impeccably groomed. And then you drive over to the black side of town and you see um, economic depression and uh, homes in disrepair and you know black cemeteries that are kind of like being being discovered again decades down the line because they're left in disrepair there's no social uh programming of the same kind to keep those keep those spaces clean so it takes a pretty hard heart and a pretty calloused eye to look at that and say oh no no this is a colorblind context um i'll pause there in case you want to push me in one direction or another but you did ask about this issue of race war i don't know yeah, I think, um, you know, this is like really interesting and in kind of understanding the levels of segregation, because I mean, obviously, so I live in the Bay Area, San Jose, so I don't see that to a larger extent. Um, 
and actually, yeah, I don't see it to a very large extent. And a lot of the listeners and, and may not even know that these things still exist in America because of, I think, uh, you know, what has been termed as like the bubble of being inside of a bubble. You don't really get to see the lived experiences of being outside of that bubble. So definitely a really good um, like example of what happens in, I would say probably a lot of areas in across America, maybe like they might not be as heavily populated, but still probably across America, there is these towns that exist where that is the case. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely do want to learn more about like this race work because I think it's an interesting question to ask and to learn from, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I have a couple of different thoughts when you, when you ask this question. One is that um, just a kind of reflection on how the term sometimes gets used that I want to kind of caution or that I kind of have a kind of sense of caution about. Because sometimes you see the term race war thrown around um, among the more conservatively inclined, for example, on, on mainstream news media or something, as the kind of threat, as a kind of bogeyman, scared, scaredy cat kind of term that's meant to kind of frighten people. As if, you know, the more we talk about the problems faced by Black folk and, and you know, um, other, other uh, communities of color in the United States, we kind of threaten race war or something like that. And so it's something that you hear a term you hear dropped into the discourse uh, that I think is doing a certain kind of work. Um, and so maybe trying to get, get those conversations out of the mainstream, because really what we need to do is kind of come together and be one, be one kind of big kumbaya uh, collective. So I don't, I, I just want, I think it's important to have that in mind when we hear this phrase. A similar kind of thing comes up with like class warfare, right? Anytime someone talks about ideas that are vaguely socialist, you're going to find pundits in discourse uh, about how this is class warfare, which is meant to kind of trigger all these uh, associated ideas and so functions to dismiss, functions to dismiss the concept or whatever concern is being raised. Um, yeah, so just to clarify, I think I was referring to like race war in the context of, I mean, I think there's, there's this book by, uh, Fred Moten and Stefano Harney called Undercommons, where they reference, I think Foucault's race war. So I was like kind of interpreting that, but also I guess more on a political level. Um, but yeah, continue. Yeah, so exactly. And so I, I say that kind of preparatory stuff precisely because I think it's a question you have to take seriously. And when you look at, you know, there's so much literature out there. When you think about um, the kinds of conditions that so many folks in this country are living in, Black folks in America, for example, uh, around issues like housing insecurity, food insecurity, uh, health challenges, particularly coming out of the pandemic and all the racial disparities we saw in terms of access to social goods in the context of a pandemic emergency. Um, it's not an insane question. It's quite a sane question, especially looking back down the centuries. Um, so, for my own part, I mean, since you're asking me, I think that there are a lot of contexts in which that language is perfectly applicable. Uh, when you think about patterns of police violence, uh, right? And the racial makeup of police forces across this nation and the disproportionate effect of police violence on communities of color, particularly black Americans, um, it's no surprise that the analysis of war and race war um, 
is, is ready to hand for a lot of people. Given the nature of my project, and we kind of haven't quite talked too much about that yet, but given the nature of my project, I'm also trying to be sensitive to like the power of terms in public discourse. So, you know, even if it's true that the best analysis of the American racial context is that there's a kind of war, that it's a kind of apartheid state. I want to have at least some time to think about uh, whether or not there are good pragmatic reasons to, to hold back that kind of language in certain kinds of public discursive contexts. That's a pragmatic question, it's a tactical question. It's distinct from the kind of analytical question about trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense. And like, obviously when it comes to kind of conversing it, I guess like the next question that I'm about to ask is directly targeting that. Um, you know, so from what I've seen, right, a lot of social advocacies on racial issues are centered often to a lack of belief and paradoxically even a, like a, a surplus of belief or too much belief. But at the end of the day, is there any effect, effective strategy to convince maybe individuals about what side um, they should be on of the race war if we want to use that lingo, if not just on topics of racial justice, like what side that they should be on and how can philosophy help in this field? Um, yeah. So I'm kind of curious what you mean by lack of belief or too much belief. I mean, I have some general thoughts about- I feel like um, lack of belief in the context of maybe some people might not believe that certain violence happens uh, unfairly um, or too much belief in that certain people may believe too much into a system uh, mm -hmm. to kind of gloss over certain maybe bad cases mm -hmm. um, or like, bad apples or whatnot mm -hmm. yeah i mean so one one thing that's coming up in terms of this bit about lack of belief is um you know the exchanges we've seen around for example the 1619 project uh, in recent years why is that project important? Why is it so incendiary? Why is it so crucial? Well, because it is trying to correct for um, a kind of significant lack in historical understanding among large portions of the population in this country. Um, you know, I'm thinking primarily of, of white folks, but not exclusively white folks. Um, there has been a kind of um, campaign to um, you know, suppress certain aspects of the history of the nation, uh, you know, the racial wrongs going back, going back uh, to the nation's founding and beforehand. Um, so, you know, and just in my own work on reparations, this is, I think a lot about this because, to the extent that that history is not known widely, uh, or to the extent that it's known vaguely and but held at a distance, historical distance, and treated as ancient history, um, conversations about reparations really are going to founder. They're going to struggle. They're going to be hard to initiate. Um, so coming back to the point about 1619, part of the reason that program is so uh, important and, and why it, what it represents is so important is just this movement to, it's a kind of national self-awareness that's required 
kind of national self-awareness that's required. And I use this analogy of selfhood, national self-awareness, treating the nation like an individual that has a self and is, a, you know, because that's, you know, anyone who's read some philosophy will know that that idea goes back a long way. This idea of the nation as an individual and kind of modeling its parts on the individual is compelling to me as a philosopher. Um, and the way that I think about resistance to reparations arguments on the part of white folks um, parallels, I think, the way that I think about the nation's resistance to this kind of to this kind of discussion. One, because what's lacking are facts, but also because of a whole set of other problems which we're probably gonna talk a bit more about in terms of um, the way that self-image comes in, the way that a certain kind of reading of history can be threatening uh, to a person, just like talking about you know, a person's past can be threatening to them uh, uh, or confronting them about their own moral character can be threatening to them in a host of different ways. So yeah. is it just like education um, that can be like an effective strategy to kind of, I don't want to say convince, but kind of show them what's happening? Like, I feel like education um, over these topics is, is really powerful, but is that like the only effective strategy that, you know, we've seen in the past or like, what is there? So I think that unfortunately, um, education is not sufficient. So it's not as if, you know, if we could get some mass program of you know uh, K through 12 uh, programming that laid bare the the relevant details of America's racial history that within a within a year we would have support for broad redistributive programs or uh, you know or or um, race sensitive programs of redistribution on a wide scale corrections for the wealth gap and so on I just don't think that would happen. Um, and it's partly because it's not just a matter of lacking the facts. I'll be first in line to say that facts are crucial. I mean, that's the point I was just making. You need those facts. In the absence of those facts, we're really just floating free. Um, it's, we're kind of untethered. And that's why so much of the political discourse feels so wild because people are really speaking from out of different universes uh, across political uh, lines, partisan lines. Um, but facts alone don't do it. And I think that's because identity is involved because facts always require interpretation as any philosopher of science will tell you. Um, facts require interpretation and synthesis into a theory and an explanation. And so I think we have to think psychologically and I think we have to think about rhetoric and I think we have to think about values and we have to think about the way we frame projects. Um, uh, the way we signal to people about what we stand for and what things might look like going forward. Um, and this is where a lot of the philosophers I talk to um, start to glaze over and lose interest in my project because for their money, the job of the philosopher is to find the facts, make the best moral argument, case closed. And if people don't believe it, that's their problem. And it's like up to public relations people to like find ways to convince them at the moment, and in recent years, I'm trying to think how a philosopher can be more useful than that. So uh, we can talk a bit more about that. So it's not, it's not just like my job is to find the true moral argument and then put it in the hands of the, of the politicians and walk away. Um, knowing what we know about um, 
the way people resist certain kinds of argument, we may need to try to formulate kind of auxiliary forms of reasoning that um, are maybe be less threatening or less kind of outrageous to people from their current kind of perspective, from their moral imagination as it stands. You might need to work with what you have, you know, meet them where they are, as, as is sometimes said. And a lot of philosophers feel like that's kind of just, you've now stepped out of philosophy, you're doing strategy, you're doing rhetoric or something like that. And I don't know, I mean, I, I don't think that's the case. I'm exploring, I'm at least exploring the idea that philosophers can be uh, principled in their reasoning, but forward-looking and kind of developmental in terms of how they pair sets of arguments together. Um, and we can maybe talk more about what I mean by that in my own work. Yeah, actually, that's exactly what I wanted to do. So like in, in terms of uh, your research on, and like dissertation on reparations, like what is the central argument here and how do you propose or at least explain like terms like fair play and what that means in the political world? Yeah, so in a nutshell, my proposal is if you want to see political, um, well, I should be more careful. Um, in some kinds of contexts, it may be helpful uh, in terms of securing progress on the political question of reparations, at least in, in relation to certain interlocutors. I'm talking about white folks, white Americans. You may have to change the moral architecture of the argument in a certain kind of way. And so what I propose is <clears throat> uh, foregrounding a different kind of moral architecture, a moral architecture that talks about fair play, maybe even sportsmanship, other kinds of norms uh, in a certain kind of way, which I'll try to make clear. The real issue is this, like reparations, the moral logic of reparations is a wrongs-based logic, right? Someone has been harmed, some wrong has occurred and it needs to be corrected. So there's a wronger, we need to, we need the wronger needs to be held accountable and the wrong needs to be corrected. People can sense that. And so when you talk about reparations, immediately, uh, many people, particularly white people will say, whoa, 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 I'm a good person. I didn't do anything wrong. I am not blameworthy. I'm just out here living my life. It's regrettable that other people have been harmed. But if you're talking about blame and guilt and accountability, that's got nothing to do with me. So I'm kind of innocent. Layer onto that a couple other different kinds of identity threat and social identity threat and moral identity threat. And it's that's quickly you've got a kind of handy way to dismiss the conversation around reparative justice. So my proposal is, can we find a way to kind of um, open the way, open the kind of uh, way for white folks to imagine themselves on the right side of this issue um, and to see how they can be held accountable for a certain kind of reparative justice, even though they have not personally done anything wrong, not been a wrongdoer in some kind of explicit sense, like a bank robber or something like that. And so in the dissertation, you know, I, I suggest this principle of fair play, which I think has some of the properties that uh, can recommend it as cutting through some of those distracting features of the wrongs-based um, moral architecture of reparative justice. So just quickly on fair play, what do I mean by fair play? Um, <clears throat> the principle of fair play, you know, goes back a long ways in political theory, but it's basically this idea that in the context of 
schemes of collective activity. So you got a bunch of people working together on some project, usually to create some social good, right? So, you know, uh, society you might think is some such project where you got people kind of pitching in, dividing labor to produce certain kinds of goods that then benefit everyone. Um, I might wake up into my life and think, well, hold on, why should I follow the laws of society? Why should I pay my taxes? I don't want to do that. Uh, why should I obey the law in one way or another? And one of the kinds of answers that political philosophers have found to this question of like why you might have an obligation to bear some of those burdens is just as a matter of fairness, right? So if you benefit from the fruits of collective initiative, you might think that you have a kind of social obligation to uh, shoulder your fair share of the burdens, whether it's paying your taxes or obeying the laws, not stealing from your neighbor, this kind of thing. That's kind of the way that the principle of fair play operates. And so related to this idea of fair play, crucially, is this notion of free riding, which is a very familiar idea, right? So you might think that people who try to get a slice of the social pie without shouldering their fair share of the burdens are just free riding. They're freeloading. They're trying to get without giving. They're trying to reap without sowing or something like that. This is a very kind of familiar idea. I think it's, crucially, I think it's familiar across the political spectrum, right? America hates a free rider, um, something that a lot of people can agree on. And it's a very kind of mundane, kind of everyday moral notion, as opposed to like lofty notions like justice, right? That we want to be powerful, but that in the political context just seem to just lose power where it's like people across the political spectrum will argue in the name of justice. And it just, it's like, what is that even, you can, how can justice be what you're both talking about? Um, whereas like free riding seems pretty clear. And, you know, most Americans will say, look, it's wrong to benefit in excess of what you do uh, if you haven't done your part. And so the thought is, why not start with some arguments about um, free riding and fair play and then if we could show how that kind of moral logic, it can be leveraged up into conversations about corrective justice and repair, independently of any kind of deliberate wrongdoing, then you would have this kind of long game developmental picture where maybe people who didn't see how reparations had anything to do with them, uh, white folks, many white folks, can now come to see how, whether they like it or not, they're kind of enmeshed in a culture that rewards uh, uh, white racial identity in various kinds of subtle ways, structural ways that can be cast as a kind of free riding, right? A kind of unfair benefiting, um, even if we imagine that those benefits don't harm anyone else. You might think there's something inappropriate about benefiting in excess of what is your due, what is unfair. Um, and so you can see how a conversation about corrective justice could begin here, independent of blame, independent of guilt, it's a matter of structure. Uh, so like the kind of scared identity that says, but I'm not blameworthy, but I'm not guilty kind of has some space to breathe here and say, yeah, okay, but I care about fairness. I care about sportsmanship and kind of, you know, um, not taking advantage, right? Good conservative values should have wide appeal. I mean, at times I think this is a bit naive and I, critics of my view will tell me that, um, they're not so confident that that it will have purchase. And so I'm, I'm sensitive to that. Um, 
And again, I'm not trying to suggest that all reparations discourse should have this character, but it seems to me that in certain kinds of contexts, reasoning in this way can have purchase and can open a kind of door and get people thinking about things that are going to be more stable and more enduring once you get the right kind of picture about how structures affect our lives in terms of advantage, in terms of disadvantage, in terms of how that has long been the case. And now we can start to see the connection to history. And now all of a sudden, when people talk about legacies of slavery, it just doesn't sound like some insane idea. It sounds like, oh, wow, I can actually feel what a legacy of slavery is as a white person. You know, when I get special treatment in a store or preference in a bureaucratic context or deference from police, um, that's legacies of racial hierarchy that are with us. And a lot of people just have all of these blinders up against that. So it's kind of a long game of breaking that down and trying to get some enduring appreciation for the ways that racial hierarchy is still very much with us. Sorry. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Um, and no, no problem at all. I think uh, it's a really interesting like viewpoint to explore, uh, especially as you mentioned that like a lot of scholars, when they approach reparations, are talking about the do's and don'ts or like the yeses and no's of it rather than like the how to how to actually achieve it. So I think it's like a really important like question and view to have. And so like, I guess it leads me to my next question because kind of talking about reparations and I guess, yeah, like reparations in general can lead to the question of like racial justice. Like, what do you believe is the way forward for America in regards to achieving racial justice? Is the solution to take the streets uh, or like passionate leaders into office? What's a reasonable and like a probable path for America to achieve racial justice? Wow, so you saved just a small question for, for, the, for the wrap up here. What's the way forward for America to achieve racial justice? I mean, so there's a couple of ways to come at this question. Um, I think um, one of the things that became clear to me in the context of my dissertation was that um, if it took centuries to create racial hierarchy in, you know, I'll say the American context, but we could talk globally as well, but focusing on the national context for a moment. If it took centuries to create the conditions that we now see in terms of like the racial wealth gap, whether we're talking about wealth, uh, uh, housing, education, employment, all these kind of strata that you can see racial disparities writ large in, like uh, in this nation it's probably gonna take generations to repair that. And so I think that um, just on a theoretical level, like the pendulum is gonna have to swing. And so it's gonna take a kind of multi-generation program of um, racial repair, redistribution, um, social support across all those dimensions to really, I mean, it, just if we're just dreaming big here, but what it would take to kind of repair to kind of achieve social justice worthy of that name, it would be some kind of, uh, some such cluster of programs. Now that's not very helpful, you know, in response to the second part of your question, like what do we do, do we take to the streets? Um, but the philosopher in me feels compelled to offer that first point. Um, what should we do? Should we elect passionate leaders? I mean, this is a very, frustrating moment that we're living in right now, as I'm sure you know. Um, you don't have to look very far into the news and the literature coming out 
from experts and policy people that we're in a kind of crisis of democracy, right? I mean, the United States has been dropped from lists, uh, you know, been de demoted in lists of global democratic flourishing. So, you know, part of what you asked was, do we elect passionate leaders? I'm not gonna say no. For one, we gotta find some. I mean, this is also kind of this frustrating moment is that there don't seem to be too many passionate leaders on the political left who are out there with a big, bold message uh, talking about these things in a head-on kind of overt way. Um, I mean, it's easy for me to say as the armchair philosopher to complain about that, but, but it seems to me to be true. So it's more a matter of, um, I guess, voting people out. Voting people out is, is something. Um, I don't know, I was thinking about this because I figured some such question like this might come up. And I, one of the things that occurred to me was that, you know, and I have students come to me with such questions all the time. It's like, if you really want to think pragmatically, you really have to think about power. And so you really have to think about how you, given the position that you have, right in the world what kind of power you have and so i think for students the kind of handiest thing there is collective power students have power when they get together uh, and when they threaten to um, for example have walkouts or strike when they try to actually hold hit people where they will feel it because protests I mean, we've just seen, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, like the kind of globally significant protest in this country, like protests at a scale, you know, an incredible scale. And I think most people will agree that there has not been some earthquake in terms of policy. Uh, it really does, if, if things are changing, if, if structural change is happening, it's happening quietly and it's happening behind the scenes from what I can tell. And that's a kind of a, I don't know if that's a too pessimistic a note to end on, but uh, it really is going to have to be something other than just signs, because signs go away after a couple hours and we forget. Yeah, definitely. And I think I do have like a few, like just one more question, maybe for like the youth who are listening. Like I personally and a lot of my friends have also protested on the streets um, when it happened, when they happened. But you know, just a few days ago, we had like Jalen Walker, a black man from Akron, Ohio, who was shot over 90 times by officers. And, you know, we were just talking about like this pessimism. And it seems that pessimism is something that a lot of students are learning and are learning kind of to have pessimism against like social changes and, and policy changes. What do you think the youth should be doing? Is it just endurance, like strategies of endurance uh, for resistance or is it also these voting out and then on top of that, maybe education? Like, is there any effective change that students can make in their daily lives or what is there for students to learn about this entire situation? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not gonna advocate pessimism, but I'm not gonna excoriate pessimism either. I mean, pessimism is a sane response to circumstances uh, like the ones in which we find ourselves, you know, where rights are being rolled back at the national level, where um, police violence is marching on kind of more robustly than ever, where like mass shootings, it's a, it's a, it's hard not to be pessimistic. Um, it's hard not to be angry, you know, to have rage. I think. There's some really wonderful work, maybe to come back to the philosophy, there's some really wonderful work coming out among 
um, theorists in my field about rage, about anger uh, and its productivity in certain kinds of ways. Um, the comments I was just making about protest and you know possible in inefficacy of certain kinds of protest, what's not needed is fireworks, right? It can feel good to protest. I've, I've protested myself. I mean, I know the feeling. It is, it is, uh, it can be empowering and it's very important. And so I'm not anti-protest. So when you're angry, when there's protests happening, I mean, that's collective action. So what I just said a moment ago is that power is in collective. And so that's, that's very much true. Um, but you don't want to just vent all your anger in the protest and then everyone goes home and they're exhausted and depleted and, and pessimistic. So what's needed, and this is maybe not so helpful, maybe not so clear, but what's needed is ways to vent the collective rage into forward-looking planning. Um, not just individual planning, but collective planning. And so um, this, is what, this is what conservatives are doing. This is what the right has been doing uh, for decades. They have a kind of moral vision that is written in decades and that they're able to collectively organize very, very well across various levels of political strata. And they know how to mobilize people. They know how to circle the wagons and front their values and get people excited. The left needs to do that. Political left needs to do that. Young people need to be a part of that. Demanding uh, and finding ways to rally people in the longer term and making those plans, keeping the anger, keeping the rage, routing it into those constructive uh, kinds, of, kinds of programming. If I had more details, I would give them to you. But I, I, I mean, that's, that's my philosopher's answer. Definitely. I think like that is a really great answer in terms of how uh, you know, we need, I think like most, mostly what there is to learn about this is that a strategy of endurance is needed, right? Like these things are not going to happen overnight, which is like wildly noticeable. But I think like practicing for endurance, also understanding that pessimism might be there along the way, but as well as, as like, you know, maintaining that goal uh, and striving towards that goal is like the main kind of summary to learn here. And that about wraps up our discussion today. If you want to learn more about, uh, you know, Professor Frigo's like research, I will link uh, his website in the description below and like on Spotify and in the YouTube so you can check it out. There's a lot of cool papers that are coming out probably on like white privilege um, and kind of like just reparations in general and anti-racism. So definitely stay tuned for that. Um, thank you so much, uh, Professor Frigo, for your time today. I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience members did as well. Well, thank you. I had a good time speaking with you. Take care.